0: Welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Anita Sykes-Kelleher. Anita Sykes-Kelleher is an internationally recognized strategic futurist with a passion for empowering organizations and communities to co-create their futures. She launched the consultancy network, Design of Futures in 2002. And for the past 18 years, she has worked with public, private and non-government organizations in Australia and internationally, including designing and facilitating capability building programs for the United Nations and for global corporations. Anita has a master's in leadership and management a Master's in Future Studies, and a PhD in Social Political Sciences on the Transforming Global Governance for 2060. Welcome to FuturePod, Anita.
1: Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to introduce myself with the first question that you've asked about what's my story with a little bit of music that I use when I'm doing a a public speech. So people will recognise this, but if not, I'll explain it briefly afterwards. there because I could listen to that all day. (laughs) For the benefit of those who are not Whovians, the theme song from Doctor Who, which is a UK science fiction series about a time traveller who visits different worlds, past, present and future. I watched my first episode when I was seven years old and I knew straight away that I wanted to be a time traveller when I grew up. I used to watch that program every week and I would put myself in the role of the young girl who was accompanying the old doctor in this TARDIS and flying around the world, going on exciting journeys with a group of companions, looking at new worlds, encountering alien species and saving planet Earth and humankind from cyborgs, robots and all other things hell-bent on destroying the human race. (laughs) And what I couldn't understand then as a, as a child, because some of that's quite believable when you're a child, I couldn't understand why the grown-ups in those programs actually didn't realize what it was happening until it was too late. They didn't seem to appreciate that there was life outside of Earth and that, you know, things could come through time and invade and do nasty things. So I think looking at that was kind of when my, my first introduction to thinking about the future, although I would never have been able to articulate it at that time. But the influence of the time traveller seems to have been a bit of a narrative of mine throughout my life. Growing up in London in the 60s, I lived in areas of high racial tension and diverse forms of cultural expression. So the colourful street carnivals, the music and dancing from many countries, the famous Ealing film studios, as an aside, because I love this memory. On our way home from school, we often saw strange film characters wandering around the park outside of the film studios, <laughs> as if I needed any further sparks for my imagination. But I would make up stories about them in which I was the central character, of course. And I recall one was a ghost story about a haunted studio. To this day, I remember believing that I saw a real ghost. Wow.
0: Wow. No,
1: still I don't want to say I didn't, <laughs> now. But London at that time had a culturally diverse population, and I went to school with kids from the West Indies, from India, from Africa, from Poland, several other countries that I can't remember, but those countries in particular, I remember my friends from those countries, and I remember the wonderful swaps we had at lunch. <laughs> they coming come in with really interesting food. And some of these friends were actually children from nearby embassies. I remember the London markets, tall, thin Jewish men with full beards, black suits, and tall, thin black hats, and the West Indian kettle drum bands with, who were wearing bright uh, patterned dresses and shirts, and the London barrow boys and the fishmongers shouting their ways in a Cockney accent, and I loved that vibrancy and energy of it all. And I thought that was normal. That was my life up until my sort of very early teens. I thought that multiculturalism was normal, that everyone lived in places where all the different cultures and colors and food stuff's all kind of just blended in and we all loved it. And then after my father died, my mother moved us back to the countryside in England. And so we left London and moved into an all white, all Christian country village. I never adapted. I I missed London so much. And I think those early experiences in London shaped my love of travel and working with people from many countries. Yep. But you get to a point, don't you, you know, when life kicks in and all your exciting adventures as a professional time traveler sort of get put on hold because you get married and have a family. So as an adult, I knuckled down and got myself a real job starting an in insurance broking and risk financing, which turned out to be quite a great introduction to anticipating futures. Although, again, I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but anticipating risks and negotiating large contracts for corporate clients and then government clients really gives you that kind of disciplined approach to anticipation. You're actually trying to not predict, but estimate is probably Mm. the nearest I can get to it, what the likely probabilities are. And so I guess my introduction in a work sense was through that. Um, In my late 30s, I was promoted to a management position and I chose to do a 16-unit experiential master's degree program in leadership and management to learn how to lead and manage people because I'd come up through the technical stream and I'd never had any responsibility for leading teams or people or, or whatever. And it was a bit of a shock, really. I got promoted on my technical expertise but then asked to do the management side of things. So I thought, gosh, I've got to go and learn the human side of this. That master's degree was, was really useful. And actually, it was my first introduction to future studies because even though I'd gone to do this leading and managing and you know, learn all the different tools and approaches that you can use to help people get the best out of people and that sort of thing. We had four units which were optional because there were 16 unit masters in those days. So you could you had 12 compulsory units and four optional. I stumbled across future studies, literally walking along the corridor in the university, which I hadn't walked along before. And there was a tiny little office <laughs> in the back of the corridor. So it was about the size of a cleaning cupboard. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I found out a bit more about it. I really enjoyed studying future studies. And for me, it blended so well with what I was doing, leadership and change management, yeah. strategy. The whole thing just sort of enriched each other. That Really, it was like an interconnected suite of, of methodologies that kind of, for me, just went, bam, that's it. You know, this
0: is what I want to be doing. Do you remember who taught you future studies at the university?
1: Yes, uh, initially Joe Barker and Janfrey Williams.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Joe Barker actually set up the program with support and assistance from Motorola and a lot of connections with Case Van der Heyden and those guys over in Europe. That sort of avenue of scenarios, and yeah, they used to come over in Case Van der Heijden and Peter Chetland. They used to come over and, and give us sort of you know master classes while we were studying, and then I was working there as well. So I I was studying, and then I started teaching. So I was kind of studying, working, and teaching at the same time, which is actually quite a lot of work now, I think, back on it. But I just, I thrived on it. I just just ran with it, you know, and I had the full support of the dean at the time, which was equally wonderful. But at the end of the day, I got to a point where I thought, yeah, I've really done all I can do with this as a, a university or an academic discipline. Oh, by the way, I drew the short straw of assignment topics, which was global governance. (laughs) Who would have thought it? I decided at that point, after two or three years of studying and teaching, that the university culture just wasn't for me. And I felt like there wasn't enough action in the university academic sphere at that time. There was a lot of study, and I appreciated what I learned from that sort of disciplined approach to research but I wanted to do stuff. And then my grandson was born, my first grandson. I thought, no, it's the doing side now. I've got to get out there and get into this and, you know, change the world as you do. So that's when I started Designer Futures and I sold my car, (laughs) bought a ticket to uh, Europe and I visited and and did some study with Michel Godet and Riel Miller in Paris and Zia Sardar in London, Anita Rubin and Ali Keskinen in Helsinki, I went to the World Council for Sustainable Development. They were wonderful because I still had that very corporate background at that time. Jan Lee Martin in Sydney and Richard Slaughter in Melbourne, of course, which is how I came to meet you guys. But my aim in visiting Europe was to learn different forms of scenario planning because the only one that was taught in the course that I did was the double driver matrix version, You know, one that Shell made famous and people now call it the Shell Methodology. And that's fine, but it's only fine in certain types of systems environment. It's great in a complicated system environment, where you want people who are experts in their field. But in a complex system, it has, in my view, limited utility. So I wanted to go and learn all the different ways of doing scenarios. And that was a a fantastic experience. Um, I got to do a bit of a informal shadowing of Riel and um, Tom Bentley when they were doing Schooling for Tomorrow with the OECD, Riel was at that time. I uh, went to London and Paris and followed them around <laughs> <laughs> into every word as you do as a passionate student, you know, writing everything down, taping them. Uh, Zia Sardar opened my mind because I thought Anita Roddick from The Body Shop was the greatest thing since sliced bread for business because of that attitude of, you know, partnering with communities and, and using traditional recipes environmentally friendly recipes and he sort of turned that on my on its head for me by basically saying but putting it as an exploitation you know some of the things that are done i don't think the body shop ever did this but i know some corporations have been into developing countries and they have registered patents on natural you know plants and things that are only grown in that country that are used for medicinal purposes and then tried to extort Mm. From the people who grow them. So I mean, you know, I understand his concern, but so he opened my eyes to that, and that was that was excellent. Um, so over the years, I've added new ways of thinking and working to the original research framework I was taught to use for co-designing and implementing uh, futures and foresight programs. Godet's La Prospective Stratégique was instrumental in shaping how I approach strategic planning. I rarely though use it in a policy setting. It's good. But I just find it's really quite, quite useful for strategic planning. With policy, I find I have to go a bit broader and not quite so strategic planning kind of focused, not quite so narrowly focused. And I think policy for me is a much longer-term approach. So there's a lot of different things that, um, that come into it. Um, I taught myself CLA initially, and then with a little mentoring from Sahail, systems thinking and mapping I got from Checkland and Meadows and then Capra and Sengi. <laughs> I got right into that at that point. Backcasting, visioning, but things that really grabbed me was the power of narratives and stories. Mm -hmm. And then I started designing programs to meet specific client needs. So I was, by that stage, I'd collected this massive array of different tools, frameworks, methodologies, approaches, change management strategies. I got to the point where it was like a plug and play my brother's a computer programmer, so I got that expression from him. <laughs> but, um, you know, where it was like, here's what the client need is. Here's how I think I can add value to that and really make it pop. Yep. And here are all the different things that need to go into that from right from the sort of values exploration from the thinking a lot of the the work that we did for example in the integral foresight and integral leadership programs you know looking at the inner and the outer and the collective and the external expression of that collective and so on and that wasn't consciously part of my design but I think it must have I must have been heavily influenced by Curtin and Swinburne when I studied (laughs) Um, because it it seems to you know if I do something without it I, I feel Yeah, but there's something missing there. Oh, yeah, I haven't really thought about this part of it, or I haven't really connected this part to that part. Yeah, good. Yeah, and then I so finishing the master's, got into work mode, and then uh, I thought, yes, if I'm ever going to do a PhD, it will have to be now before I get too old. So, (laughs) And the PhD, as you would know, P2, is about transforming global governance to replace the UN by 2060 if anyone listening has a cold wet weekend or you're locked in and nothing to do, feel free to wade through it. You can get it on Sir Hale's website, the Metafuture website, but also I think there's still a link on the Centre for Australian Foresight website. Give a bit of a plug to my friends over there. And when I was looking at the PhD, I still had that mindset of I want to change the world. I want to do something that makes a difference. I want to make the world a better place for my grandchildren and so on. So I was looking at I didn't want to do the usual PhD about here's the different models of United Nations and we think we should have this one. you know. I really wanted to get the views of people who were excluded from the United Nations by, for one reason or another. Mm. After a while, I discovered this international-based, membership-based organization, which has the lovely acronym of UNPO. So it makes it look like it's a UN organization, rather clever. But it's actually the Unrepresented Nations and People's Organization. And uh, they had 70 nations at that point. Mm. And I looked at those nations and and I hadn't heard of half the names, frankly. Uh, But I thought, here's an organization I can work with and get some real outside in perspectives of the United Nations and what was wrong with it and where these people thought it should go. And I felt that I could make a difference in the lives of many people continuing on that sort of pathway and during that phase, I was working, studying. Oh, yeah, it took a lot on then. I took on too much, actually. But I was appointed, I was asked to uh, participate as a member of a team of 10 people internationally to do the research phase of the World Water Scenarios Project. And initially they said, okay, so you 10 guys have been selected. Here's a, Here's a list of sets of drivers. Which one do you want to take on? And so I jumped in and said, Ethics, Society and Culture. And I had no hesitation in asking for that because it really interests me. But the hesitation came a bit later when I learned it had never been done before. And this was a global (laughs) program. So it was a huge challenge, very stressful, but incredibly rewarding for, again, its contribution to my purpose of creating that better world for my grandchildren.
0: Good.
1: presented my PhD findings to UNESCO in Paris, thanks to Riel Miller for organizing that. And they gave me a consultancy project around socially inclusive policy. And I worked with the Malaysian government and university to interpret, or should I say reinterpret, UNESCO's design for the Malaysian context. And also work with the academics and the government policy officers to take people through a pilot program and make sure that they were actually contributing to the design and how that ran. So it was a successful pilot with a lot of to and froing, and it obviously took a lot longer than you'd anticipate but it got rolled out to other countries and was announced I think officially launched with the launch of the SDGs in Malaysia. Six of the SDGs have social inclusion in them so it seemed quite topical at the time. Yeah from there I've worked on a few other international projects including working with a group of global corporations on the reinvention of growth It was lovely being back in the corporate sector again, (laughs) money to pay people. (laughs) I'll be very blunt about that. But all jokes aside, the group of corporations that came together for this program really did have a genuine desire to work in harmony with nature, in harmony with society. And at the same time, they have fiscal responsibilities, legal responsibilities. They have to maximize shareholder returns. And so there were a number of sort of interesting avenues to negotiate, but there was no compromise, which I absolutely loved about it. We worked on it until we found something that made people feel good about working there, that made, was innovative and still gave the shareholders a better return for their investment. So that's pretty cool.
0: Excellent. two is the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a method or framework that they believe is central to their practice. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about?
1: Something I noticed when I was working as a lecturer and a program designer and collaborating with a number of colleagues and looking at different things, nobody at that point in the university or even the visitors that came from other countries to talk to us, Nobody had really got a framework that pulled all of these different methods together. There were the scenario planning people. There were the systems people. There were the visioning people. There were the strategy people. But nobody actually had that lovely flow of program where it came together. Now, Godet's work did well in that regard. And obviously, Joe Voros then went on to do the GFP, the generic foresight process, which also had that nice flow to it, which I like. But again, there were things I was doing that weren't specifically futures and foresight related that I felt needed to plug into it. So I developed my own sort of process flow. I called it Keridwen, by the way, which is named after the Celtic goddess of transformation who may or not be may or may not have been a real one. <laughs> uh, it could well be totally fictional, and I don't care. <laughs> I like the idea of having a Celtic goddess of power and strength and transformation. I thought, well, I'll name it Keridwen. I've continually added to it, as I mentioned before. So starting off with the sort of formal learning at university and then realizing there's lots of things that I want to do that did not work covered in that kind of program, then actually blending it with all the other things that I wanted to do and achieve. And I guess where I'm at now with that is that I'm doing a lot of strategic foresight work with innovation, leadership development, and organizational evolution in a quite long experiential learning program so that changes created from within both individual and collective within. It's co-designed with client sponsors and the partners and participants of the program. And its aim is, primary aim is to develop new ways of thinking and working better suited to this centuries of world. In that sense, it's probably quite similar to what a lot of other people are doing. I think I think my blend of things is probably unique because it is based on my experience and it's based on people whose work I like and respect. So, you know, I make no bones about that. I, I like certain ways of doing things and I pick the kind of methodologies that I feel comfortable working with, happy to facilitate and teach other people to use. Yeah. So one of these days I'm going to publish it. um, Next year, I've decided I'm going to advance. I'm not going to retire because I've got no intention of backing away from life. I'm going to advance next year. And that might be the year I publish all this. But there are a number of influences because this is another one of those U-shaped theories. And when I say another one, Lewin's theory of change was the first one I came across. Then Sharma's theory U and then oddly enough, Inaitullah's CLA, when I first encountered it, it, was a linear process, but I saw it as a U and I've used it as a U. All years I've used it. I've never actually just gone down the different levels and stopped at the bottom. I've always gone back up the other side and recreated new narratives, mm. new stories, new systems, etc. Yeah. So Carridwan is a a much messier version of this U-shape methodologies. And at each level, there are a number of different approaches you can use. So if you can imagine like a U-shape and then sort of little daisies at various points, each daisy has a methodology in it and you plug and play the different methodologies as you go through. So, But it's quite good fun and it works for me.
0: Have you actually sort of coached other people in using it at all?
1: No, I haven't. That might be something I could do next year too. I actually don't want to work anymore. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to work anymore. Um, you know, I don't want to retire either. So next year is going to be interesting.
0: I don't think you're going to go quietly into the, the sunset. I think you're going to like the doctor. I think you'll just, uh, what was the term? Whenever you regenerated again, what was that term again? Like a metamorphosis or something, but no, that's not the term, yeah so maybe you're going to go through your own metamorphosis and you might actually come out a bit like he did in his latest one he came out and he changed his gender
1: well I have often said when I've used the Doctor Who theme song in my introductory presentations that uh, I was actually the first female Doctor Who not Jodie Whittaker <laughs> so <laughs> I make that claim because I'm a lot older than her right. I'm actually about 2,000 years old now I think but sometimes I feel it
0: Let's go to question three, the one where I talked to Anita Sykes Kelleher, the human being, the citizen of the world, um, about how she both makes sense of the emerging futures around her. And what are the emerging futures that get your attention? They may get your attention as an exciting, positive thing, and they may get your attention as a kind of concern. How do you sense make it, and what are you sense making emerging around you?
1: Okay. What I was thinking about was more in a work sense and because I've made so many friends now in Asian countries that I kind of feel like that is personal for me because, you know, that's that's kind of where my heart is, really. But what I'm seeing at the moment is a tremendous energy in Asian governments. And you asked about how I sense things. I'm I'm really basic when it comes to things like that. I, I forget about research and methodologies. I go out in the street and I, I observe people and I look at people's habits. I look at different generations and how they interact. I look at what young people are doing in the streets and I listen to what they're saying and the words they're using the technology that they use and so on. So it's really about observation and then just really coming back and thinking about it. So it's kind of observation, reflection. What does that mean? What does that mean in the context? What does it mean to me? Why do I see that differently? You know, that what I call the Alice Alice in Wonderland approach. (laughs) Go down the rabbit hole and see what's there and go down multiple rabbit holes and and pull it together. But I've been very, uh, very blessed to have some great projects over the last three years in different Asian countries, several of them and some repeat work as well, which is always good. The tremendous energy I'm seeing in Asian governments, particularly in the least developed countries, The government people that I've had the privilege to work with and and make friends with in some cases have a huge appetite for learning and using futures and foresight work, scenarios in particular. I mean, the Philippines, for example, some of the people from the Philippines um, government came to a few of our workshops within a fairly short order, I I don't want to give too many names away here, but within fairly short order, um, one of the the women that I was mentoring had managed to secure ministerial support at Senate level for Foresight to go in. In that particular workshop, we presented the generic Foresight process, but the Anita version of it. She took that back. I said, Don't assume that you have to just do this word for word as it is in the process. Here are some of the things that we think are behind this and take the process away and adapt it. And if you don't like something, if it doesn't work for you, take it out, redesign it for yourself. And she did, and she presented it to the Senate and it got through.
0: (laughs) Fantastic.
1: So, I mean, it's really amazing. That's what I love. It's like seeing somebody from a developing country come to a workshop that's sponsored by someone else because they are a developing country And they take this back and they work and work to make it happen. And they are so appreciative of education and learning. And it makes me feel a little guilty because we come back to Australia and, Mm. oh, they've got to go to school again. Oh, no, another week at uni, you know. The stuff that we take for granted and even bag a lot of the time, uh, people over there just they value it so highly. It's, It's actually a pleasure to work in Asian countries.
0: Yes, it is interesting when you think it through the futures triangle in terms of the weight of the past and how yeah, there are there are cultures that almost have got too much they're almost carrying too much to move quickly to the future, and then you get the other people who are just so excited by the by the pull of what's possible,
1: yeah, yeah, I agree it's um. And when you look at that Futures Triangle, if you go to the weights on the in the bottom right-hand corner of the triangle, can you have a corner of a triangle? Is that, all right? Is that allowed? The weights section, yeah. having studied Asian cultures before going to work over there, we were always led to believe that Asian cultures were very past-oriented, that they were sort of fairly <laughs> past, you know. And I would have to say that there's a, a huge value for the past and for traditions and so on. Yeah. But gee, whiz, they managed to get right into the future as well, and when they've decided to do something, it happens. there's no stuffing around, there's no years of, of debates at ha- houses and government and so it's going to happen. we're going to do it. it's happening now
0: <laughs> I just did an interview with, with Sherman Cruz, just came out last month. He was our first Filipino uh, you know futurist on future pod, and yeah that, the sense of excitement, the sense of what's possible yeah is uh is clear
1: yeah i tried to bring sherman into one of the workshops i was doing over there it was a week-long workshop and they'd hired me um i was doing a series of workshops for the executives in the different government areas and i thought look this is i love going over there don't get me wrong and i'd go back in a heartbeat as soon as the flights are available again i thought this is silly i could bring sherman into this and bring a local component into it and then they've got support when i'm not there you know and it's a But uh, I couldn't persuade the client to let me bring him in initially. And we tried to set up a meeting, but he got caught in traffic and that traffic jam was about five hours. So we gave up on that.
0: It wasn't meant to happen this time.
1: It wasn't meant to happen on that occasion, but it's definitely going to happen in the future because we're both involved in the um, Future Studies Certificate and Design of Programs for the uh, ADAP, which is great, which is the organisation I've been working with.
0: And the upcoming Asian Futures Conference.
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's going to be fun as well. I am bringing together a Millennium Project panel from different nodes around the region. And for many years, I've, I've wanted to have more of a regional presence from this part of the world in the Millennium Project. And it seems like it's finally happening. Excellent. And uh, the lovely Parush Chowdhury uh, also, he said, oh, I want you to do that too. And I said, well, join me then because I'm going to be handing it over next year. So So we're working on that together and so we'll see what gets presented because at the moment we don't know. We haven't decided yet, but it should be fun.
0: Thanks, Amanda. So fourth question, the communication one. How do you explain what you do? To people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do. Yeah.
1: You know, I think we had this conversation back in the Swinburne days when um, we had those, what were they called? The Foresight conferences back then. I can't remember what they were called.
0: There was the Oz Foresight.
1: Oz Foresight, that was the ones that were great conferences. Really enjoyed those. And that was a key problem that a lot of people had, the students and the and the experts as we were thinking of them at the time, the people who were working in the field didn't know what to tell people. How do we make it correct and at the same time make it accessible to the public? And so I I think over the years I've tried to come up with different ways of doing it. And I still maintain that the approach of understanding your audience, who is it you're talking to, is key. So I will usually tell people that my purpose for doing this work is to create a better world for our grandchildren. And I feel sort of privileged to have four of those now. So it's a personal thing for me. So if my audience is the public, I might say something like, uh, I might do my Doctor Who thing. And then I say something about think of me as a tour guide to the future. I take organizations and communities on journeys through time and space, exploring different future worlds that might develop depending on actions taken today. And we then come back to the present and use what we learn from the future to make wiser decisions and plans for the medium and long term. And then I go back into it. It's a bit like science fiction. It's great fun and it's empowering. Mm -hmm. If I'm speaking to a senior government team, I usually do the sort of consultancy type introduction. For over 20 years, I've specialized in developing strategic foresight, innovation and leadership capabilities, working with governments, United Nations, universities and global corporations to help people learn the mindsets and capabilities they will need to reinvent their organisations to become future fit. And by that, I mean fit for the future as in fit for purpose. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Our role as a government is not to predict the future, it's to take responsibility for our part in shaping it. I know I got that from the French school, but I can't remember the name of the guy who said that, but I've used it quite a lot in government. It's probably Gaston Berger. Probably, yes. Definitely. It wasn't Godet, but it was one of those guys over there. And then if I'm speaking to a corporate audience, more recently I've been saying, you know, growth isn't what it used to be. Leaders' assumptions about the future are being challenged. And the next generation of leaders need to learn new ways of thinking and working now if your company is to rapidly adapt to emerging changes and optimize shareholder returns for the future. I can guide your teams on a learning journey to build these capabilities while creating innovative projects for your company's future. And pathways on the learning journey build leadership, futures thinking, innovation, communication, and cultural evolution abilities. Cool. Sometimes it's just as simple as help people think about and make decisions about the long-term future. I tried to get one of those really snappy, kind of smart kind of descriptors, and whichever way I went, I didn't like it. It all sounded too cheesy. So What do you say to your grandchildren? I'm creating the world that I want you to grow up in.
0: I love it. Love it. So I've got the last question, Anita, and I'm going to suggest what I'd like you to talk about. Wendell Bell in Foundation of Futures Studies talked a lot about the centrality of ethics in futures work. I know you have claims and interest in this area, so what's your take on the role of ethics in the work that we do? Mm. I'll
1: go back to the work I did for the World Water Scenarios Project, because when I approached that piece and when I jumped at it and said, yes, please, I want to do ethical, social and cultural drivers, I I sort of had a vague, I thought I knew what ethics was and I thought I understood how it worked until I started researching it for that particular project. Mm -hmm. So this may not be a general kind of definition, but... The conclusion I came to about ethics when I did that project was that it's about power. It's about power dynamics, Mm. those who have it and those who don't have it, and your ethical behavior as a futurist, and particularly if you're an experienced one and you've learned how to use the tools in a way that you can manipulate for good or ill, uh, the conversations, (laughs) the um, outputs of the research, the, the strategies, whatever your product is going to be, you have a power over the people in that room who haven't got that level of skill. And my concern, particularly working in Asian countries and particularly least developed countries who are relying on international funding from UNDP and ASEAN and the World uh, Asian Development Bank and those sorts of people, they are trusting to a certain extent, I think, they're trusting this expert that's been paid for to come over and work with them in a genuine way and help empower them, not use the power over them. That makes sense. So for me, ethics comes back to the power that we have as futures and foresight practitioners over the people, over the subjects that we're dealing with, because we have the skills that we've developed over a period of time. I look at it as it is a branch of philosophy, obviously, but I look at it as it deals with your human character and your conduct. It, ha- it guides your, your behavior. And the relationships underneath are the kind of power relationships quite often associated with relations between people. So ethical behavior presumes a moral society in which the haves treat the haves-nots equitably. Um, in the water system we were looking at for example ethics and their associated power relations are woven through the interconnected elements of the water system and in the connections between the water system and other systems such as food production energy politics economies you could do an entire environmental scan around the water system and you'd have covered every system of macro system of reality so it affects such issues such as water allocation You know, what moral duty do the haves owe to the have-nots and who decides who gets what and what it can be used for and how much do we allocate to non-human life? These were the sort of questions Mm -hmm. we were asking. And the intergenerational equity side of it for sustainability and regenerative design, what are our obligations to future generations? And under what conditions, if any, can it be considered ethical for one state to intervene in another's affairs when that country has water and doesn't want to sell or share it with others. And I guess on a positive note, one of the very encouraging things I'm seeing from these workshops we've been doing over the last few years in Asia is that there are a number of conversations about an Asian, I'll call it an Asian union. It, it's not going to be like the EU or even the African Union, but there is a lot of conversation happening amongst governments around sharing resources so i mean food security obviously a lot of the countries are still agricultural economy food and water are huge food water and energy nexus is massive so who's going to make those decisions about who has what and if the countries themselves can come together and agree that they can share resources and i've been in a conversation or two where those conversations are happening you know we well we're really good at growing this and we've got lots of that left over. How can we ship some of that to you and what do you have and what so there's a lot of that kind of if you like trading right um, but in in natural resources and things that that are going to make a difference in the lives of people for a long time to come. So instead of competing for some of these areas, particularly water, I believe that they will share it uh, and learn how to value it
0: better than we do. I channel Zia Sardar, and I'd say that he would point out that a lot of our ethical, if you like, frameworks that we as futurists practice are themselves embedded in colonial cultures, mm-hmm. and we can believe we are being ethical, but in fact, what we are actually operating is is basically a new colonialist yeah. in the country because the ethics of the country may come from a completely different frame of reference to what we are familiar with.
1: Absolutely. And it's interesting then that how do we, I mean, we obviously have to understand ourselves and understand the kind of the framing of our, our own understanding of ethics when we're going into other countries and try to get an understanding of how they see ethics I hope that if we brought it back to those sort of fundamental principles about how the haves treat the have-nots equitably, I like that expression, uh, and, you know, the power, the power that you have and how power is used, mm. yeah, I hope if we can come back to those sort of basic principles that any country would be able to say, okay, I get that principle, in my country it would look like this or in my country I would need to do this I mean, I'm very fortunate. I, I get to deal with a lot of very well educated people in Asian countries. And quite frankly, this sort of discussion around ethics, I don't think they'd have a problem. I've, I've been absolutely amazed at how quickly they can take new concepts or unfamiliar concepts and apply them into their own context and make them work. So. I don't have a lot to deal with uh, remote communities or uh, impoverished communities. Those sorts of things. I, I I don't get to see the starving people in Africa and those sorts of things much as I'd like to do something to help them and may do next year. But that's I think when the ethics really comes about comes into play when I see global corporations, energy companies in particular at the moment in Africa going into African countries and their behaviour. a lot of the time it's actually good it's coming from a good place but it lacks the understanding and they're still looking at it from the point of view the Europe and the U.S. are the world's dominant cultures and therefore their way of looking at things is you know is the dominant way of looking at things and and that people in developing countries are somehow backward somehow not as well educated somehow not as learned or I haven't got the right word for it there but Not as good as us is probably the
0: Mm.
1: the easiest way I can put it. And and I have seen that in my travels. I hope that I don't give a similar impression when I go overseas. I'm I'm quite conscious of my background and how it's influenced the way I practice. I hope that I behave ethically to my own understanding of ethics. And I hope that anyone in the country that I work with would be happy to stand up and tell me if I'm not doing. Mm.
0: Thanks Anita it's been lovely to catch up again thanks for taking some time out to chat with the Future community
1: Well thank you Peter it's been a pleasure and yes the uh, the good thing about these conversations is that they get so involved you could just go on all day couldn't you
0: I can This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.